There is often a certain dread that comes over us as we approach a thorough study of John's book of Revelation. How will I ever understand this book? How can I figure out all the symbols and mysterious beasts? Is there application in this book for me personally? In this week's podcast and in one more lesson on Revelation to follow, we will give you some tools and some thoughts that will help you unlock this great book. Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. This week's lesson is called Glory and Power Be Unto the Lamb Forever and comprises Revelation chapters 1 through 11. It's hard to imagine that we've made our way together through 26 of the 27 books of the New Testament in this year's course of study. This has been a glorious year of learning. Don't forget that you can still order our beautiful bicentennial calendar for 2020 celebrating the first vision. This calendar not only features stunning photography of the Sacred Grove and the Smith Farm, it also has significant dates to the Smith family and inspiring quotes from the Prophet Joseph that will lift you all year long. Priced at just $15, these make perfect gifts for your family, ministering families, friends, and associates. There's still time to order them today at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash calendar. Again, that's latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash calendar. Just one personal note. As you know, we always launch these podcasts on Friday for the following week that starts that new course of study, that new chapter. And I've hesitated to say this, but I wanted you to know why this podcast episode is four days behind schedule. My precious angel mother, Martha Facer Proctor Flandro, passed away this past weekend, and of course, that was our priority. My mom lived to be 100 years, 6 months, and 14 days old, and she stayed in her own home, on her own, with a lot of help from the family, until four days before her passing. Now she's with my dad, my brother, our daughter, her parents, six siblings. Well, it's a very joyous reunion, and though the obituary will say, that she died. I testify that she lives. Joseph Smith said, The book of Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. Let's start out our studies of Revelation by trusting that statement and looking for some keys from the prophet Joseph and others to help us understand this most plain book. Elder Bruce R. McConkie taught, In response to the question, Are we expected to understand the book of Revelation? Certainly. Why else did the Lord reveal it? The common notion that it deals with beasts and plagues and mysterious symbolisms that cannot be understood is just not true. It is so far overstated that it gives an entirely erroneous feeling about this portion of revealed truth. Most of the book is clear and plain and should be understood by the Lord's people. Certain parts are not clear and are not understood by us, which, however, does not mean that we could not understand them if we would grow in faith as we should. The Lord expects us to seek wisdom, to ponder His revealed truths, and to gain a knowledge of them by the power of His Spirit. Elder McConkie also taught, We are in a much better position to understand those portions of Revelation which we are expected to understand than we generally realize. 
Thanks be to the interpretive material found in sections 29, 77, 88, and others of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants and other Latter-day scriptures, we have a marvelously comprehensive and correct understanding of this otherwise hidden book. This is a great lesson we need to learn in general about our studies in all the standard works. The scriptures are the best commentary on the scriptures. Absolutely. And once we understand that truth, that the scriptures are such a wonderful commentary on the scriptures, we see things we have never seen before. But Elder McConkie also gave us seven guidelines or tools to our specific study of the book of Revelation. Let's look at them. These are 1. Know that the book of Revelation deals with things that are to occur after New Testament times, particularly in the last days. Well, that's something then that applies directly to us in these latter days. 2. Have an overall knowledge of the plan of salvation and of the nature of God's dealing with men on earth. I'm glad Elder McConkie gave us that one. We of all people should understand this book because we have the fullness of the gospel Jesus Christ and a correct knowledge of the great plan of happiness and of salvation. 3. Use various Latter-day revelations which expand upon the same subjects in similar language. Okay, we already heard above that we have whole sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, namely sections 29, 77, and 88, and of course more insights in section 130. These then become some of our keys to understanding this great book of Revelation. 4. Study the sermons of Joseph Smith relative to the book of Revelation. Joseph Smith spoke a number of times about the book of Revelation, including a major talk given by the prophet Joseph in General Conference on April the 8th, 1843. This is easily found in the History of the Church, Volume 5, beginning on page 339. 5. Use the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. This is always great counsel, Scott, in studying the Bible. The prophet Joseph gave us 3,410 new, changed, or modified verses through his translation of the Bible. We always need to take note of these verses. Use them. Study them. Note them. Of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, our scriptures footnote 47 of them that Joseph gave us changes or modifications to. That's about 12% of the book. You know that I always love to draw from the Joseph Smith translation, Maureen. Now, number six, reserve judgment on those things for which no interpretation is given. This is a great guideline, especially when dealing with intellectuals who are ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And number seven, seek the Spirit. Of course, we should be seeking the Spirit in all that we do, and especially in our studies of the Scriptures. Maureen, may I interject a quick story here? It does have to do with this last point. When I was first off my mission, I worked at Deseret Book in the University Mall in Orem, Utah. Around Christmas season, we used to be so swamped with customers in the bookstore, we had to hire extra security people just to keep an eye out for shoplifters. One day we had one, a real live shoplifter. He grabbed something and our person saw him and called him out as he began to quickly leave the store. A chase through the mall ensued with yelling, Shoplifter, stop him! A number of people started in pursuit. This man was fast. He finally ducked through another store and threw the book in the air behind him and escaped. He was later caught elsewhere and he was armed and dangerous. But ironically, 
The book he had stolen from us was Seeking the Spirit by Joseph Fielding McConkie. <laughs> I guess we should have let him go. He was trying to reform. The point is, we should all be seeking the Spirit in our studies of the Scriptures and of this book of Revelation. I bet he was trying to give that gift to his mother. <laughs> it might be optimistic to think he was trying to reform. Well, we won't forget that story, Scott. One more thing that I think is important, as we've been laying some groundwork to understand the book of Revelation, Gerald N. Lund has taught, Some portions of the scriptures are less easily understood than others. Many readers are used to fast-moving narratives like the story of the sons of Mosiah and their mission to the Lamanites. The books of Isaiah and Revelation are not that kind of historical record, and church members who try to read them as narratives have difficulty understanding them. Clearly, one should not expect to read Revelation through once and fully comprehend it. So true. Revelation has to be studied carefully, systematically, and prayerfully. Now, Maureen, I think it's very interesting that the Book of Mormon gives a shout-out to three specific books of the Bible, Isaiah, Malachi, and the Revelation of John. We know that numerous prophets were given to see the grand vision of the history of the world through the last days, including the brother of Jared, Nephi, Daniel, Moses, but John was specifically commissioned to write and publish what he saw. The others were given to see and to write everything, but none were allowed to give their vision to the world except for John. Yes, at the end of Nephi's grand vision he was told, But the things which thou shalt see hereafter thou shalt not write, for the Lord God hath ordained the apostle of the Lamb of God, that's John, that he should write them. And also others who have been, to them hath he shown all things, and they have written them, and they are sealed up to come forth in their purity in the own due time of the Lord. And I, Nephi, heard and bear record that the name of the apostle of the Lamb was John. That's such an amazing teaching that certain prophets are given certain assignments to carry out and were foreordained before the foundation of this world. It makes me wonder what each one of us listening was foreordained to do and to be. So, our John here was specifically assigned to see and write down and publish this revelation. Now, let's understand that there is much more to it than what we have, but we're so grateful for the portion that we do have. First of all, let's learn about the original title. The title of the book in Greek is Apocalypsis, from which we get its other common name, the Apocalypse. Apocalypsis is formed from two Greek words, apo, a preposition denoting separation or removal, and calypto, a verb meaning to cover, hide, or veil. Apocalypsis, then, literally means removal of the veil or covering, hence its title in English, the Book of Revelation, or the uncovering or unveiling. And isn't it interesting, Maureen, that the person who would be called to write this great revelation of the end of the world would also be given the blessing and privilege at his own request to be able to tarry on the earth and to not only see all these things in vision, but to be an eyewitness of the end of the world. John is truly a unique apostle with the three Nephites and others who have been granted to stay on the earth and bring souls to the Lord. We could certainly do a number of podcasts on translated beings and angels who are here to assist us and 
turn our hearts to Christ. But we couldn't do an interview. Not a live interview. I would love to, though. It helps to understand the setting and context of John as he is given this vision in Revelation. He had been banished to the Isle of Patmos. Patmos sits just 40 miles off the western shore of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. John directs his revelation and writing of this book to the seven churches which are in Asia. These are seven congregations of saints who are located in the Roman province called Asia in western Turkey. That's right, and you will recognize the first church called Ephesus, which was the closest church to Patmos, only about 63 miles away. The other six churches are Smyrna, which is the modern-day Turkish port city of Izmir, Pergamos, which is the site of Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, which is not the same Philadelphia that's of the Decapolis in Israel, and Laodicea. So the number seven plays out a great deal in the book of Revelation. And remember what we said about the scriptures being the greatest commentary on the scriptures? Let's walk through a few of these symbols and see how the meanings and interpretations of these symbols are right in the text of the vision. Now, on this part, you may want to turn to the actual transcript for Podcast 48 at latterdaystmag.com forward slash podcast. That will help you see the scripture references as we go along. Again, these are just the meanings of these symbols explained right from the scripture text. The seven golden candlesticks in the first chapter, Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, are the seven churches, and that's in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, and I'm not going to list all those. You'll have to find those in the podcast. Right in the transcript there, you'll see all these references. The golden vials full of odors mentioned in chapter 5 are the prayers of the saints. The great red dragon in chapter 12 is that old serpent called the devil and Satan. The many waters upon which the whore sits in Revelation 17 are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The fine linen, clean and white, in Revelation 19 is the righteousness of the saints. Often you have to search around for the meaning and commentary in the scriptures, like Nephi when he went to have the same vision as his father Lehi. Then Nephi gives us a lot of commentary and interpretation of the vision. The morning star in chapter 2 of Revelation, we find out in chapter 22, is Jesus Christ. The seven heads of the beast in chapter 13 are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and seven kings. The tree of life in Revelation chapter 2, whose fruit the faithful may eat, is the love of God. And we find the commentary and explanation of this in 1 Nephi chapter 11. Michael in Revelation 12 is Adam, which we learn in section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Do you see how the scriptures become a commentary on the scriptures? And I love to search for the meanings through the scriptures themselves. And it suddenly becomes much more clear. Mystery is taken away. See, isn't that a great tool to know that very often you can find commentary and interpretation and meanings and explanations for difficult passages right there in other passages of scripture? Once you have that tool in your mind, you will see it all the time. You'll see us using that tool next year as we study the Book of Mormon together. That book is full of scriptural commentary and explanations. 
And by the way, please go to the December 1987 ensign, it's right there online, and look for Gerald N. Lund's article entitled, Seeing the Book of Revelation as a Book of Revelation. That could be a very helpful study guide for you and your family for these two lessons on Revelation. You'll love it. Let's briefly look at a few other symbols and images that you see in John's vision. We will just go through 14 of these to give you some sense of the symbolism and imagery John gives us. We will, however, leave a list of 44 different symbols here in the podcast notes that will be accessible at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash podcast, and then just look for podcast 48. Again, the whole list will be in the notes for podcast 48 at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash podcast. We are taking this list from Kelly Ogden and Andy Skinner's book called Verse by Verse, the New Testament, Volume 2. Their two-volume series is wonderful, by the way. Modern prophets and the scriptures have explained many of the symbolic terms and expressions in the Revelation. Seven spirits, or angels, are the seven servants of the church. Seven candlesticks are seven churches. New Jerusalem from heaven means the city of Enoch. The sea of glass is the celestialized, sanctified earth. Book with seven seals are the 7,000-year periods of world history. And that's really important to know, those seals. Each one represents a 1,000 years of the world's history. And you'll see that open up as you read the book of Revelation. Horses are representative of events in the 1,000-year periods. Sealing in foreheads, that means to have one's calling and election made sure. The little book was John's mission to gather the tribes of Israel. Twelve stars that are referred to are the twelve apostles. The man-child given birth by the woman is the millennial kingdom of God. The angel flying in the midst of heaven is Moroni and others. Vials are judgments or plagues. And the marriage of the Lamb is the second coming. The root of David is Christ. Again, come to our podcast notes published on Meridian to see 30 more symbols you can study in your home. They are at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash podcast. Then look for podcast number 48. As we've been speaking of all these symbols, I've been thinking about the number seven and specifically the seven promises given to those faithful saints who overcome the world. They are talked about in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Elder McConkie says, What is said applies in principle to all congregations of saints in all the world, in all ages. In each instance, the promises given are conditioned upon the requirement that the recipient shall overcome the world. Let's look at them closely. Promise number one, To him or her that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What a promise to live for. The tree of life we learn from the Book of Mormon is not only the love of God, but it is the love of God as manifest in His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. This means if we overcome the world, we will be able to sup with the Savior Himself and partake of His eternal nature. Promise number two. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. That is a promise worth living for as well. The first death is our parting from this mortal sphere. The resurrection of Jesus Christ will allow all who have ever received a body here on this earth to be able to overcome the first death. 
the second death is spiritual death and would keep us from the presence of God. Promise number three. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. This one is a bit deeper and is very exciting for the faithful. We have some commentary on this in section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Then the white stone will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. And a white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom, whereon is a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. The white stone is a personal Urim and Thummim and will be given to the faithful in the celestial world. That's so exciting. I can't wait. That really excites your imagination, doesn't it? Wow. And the hidden manna has reference to not living by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. Elder McConkie taught, In the miracle of the loaves and the fishes was manifest the same gracious goodness shown forth upon all Israel anciently. First, food came to hungry mouths to satisfy their temporal needs. And second, it was done to bear record of that heavenly bread, that hidden manna, that spiritual food of which all men must eat if they are to gain eternal life. In other words, we are to be fed in this life by earthly means to keep our bodies alive and by spiritual or heavenly means to keep our spirits alive and well fed. Promise number four, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. At that time, Rome ruled the world with a rod of iron, but the promise to the faithful here is a temple reference and that the faithful are promised to rule as kings and queens in the kingdom of God over kingdoms in heaven, and they will be given the Son of God as their king. Promise number five. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There is no greater blessing than to have the great advocate, the redeemer of the world, confess your name before the Father and plead your cause before him. And this book of life is an actual book whereon the names of the faithful are written and they, the faithful, become joint heirs with Christ and heirs to all that the Father has. Promise number six. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. We don't have time to expound upon this one, but he is talking here about the temple of God in heaven the actual temple where God our Heavenly Father dwells and rules from on high. The faithful will become pillars in this temple, ever standing in the presence of God in His holy house. And the new Jerusalem, or the city of Enoch, will come down out of heaven and become the city of holiness, or the city of the man of holiness, the city of our God, 
Wouldn't you love to sit down and just talk about this promise and search out all the teachings of the prophets and scriptures just on this one promise? That sounds amazing. And finally, promise number seven, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. This is the ultimate blessing. This is the promise of becoming a king and a queen with the father and the son. This is the culminating blessing of the oath and covenant of the priesthood. Therefore, all that my Father hath shall be given him. These seven promises are so far beyond this veiled world of sorrow and darkness. These are, taken together, the promises of eternal life in the presence of God. And of course, as you have probably been noticing, all of the promises relate to temple worship. The tree of life, the crown of life, the hidden manna and the new name, the rod or scepter and morning star, the white raiment, the pillar in the temple, and the feast, the messianic banquet, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is all temple language. It's all very exciting. Now we have to touch briefly on Revelation chapter 5. Be sure and include this chapter in your studies at home. Here we see a book sealed with seven seals. Each of these represent a thousand years of the earth's history. But there is a dilemma in this vision. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, this is in verse 2 of chapter 5, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So John weeps because he cannot see how the great plan of salvation will be carried out. Who will execute the plan? And then it continues, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ here. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints." And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. What a beautiful image to think about the Savior Jesus Christ being the only one who could, through his mission, open these seals. So there is great rejoicing in the heavens because the Lamb of God, who is the great Jehovah, even Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, he steps forward and he will open the seals and carry out the will of the Father in all things. You can feel that rejoicing in your own soul if you ponder upon this very long. You were there to witness this. What a glorious moment this was. It also reminds us that God has his hand in history. Not that people don't act out of their own agency and we see blood and horror on this earth, but God can use all these things to work together for his ultimate purposes through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And John says in verse 11 of chapter 5 that he heard the voice of a hundred million angels and then millions and millions beyond that, all rejoicing and crying aloud, Worthy is the Lamb. These numbers are figurative and underestimate the numbers that were there rejoicing. Yes, this this hundred million means so many more than we can count. These are great thoughts to have when you're in the kitchen with a sink full of dishes and feeling a little low about things. We are part of something so great and wonderful. It just is beyond our imagination here in this limited sphere of mortality. Now we have to end with a little discussion about the two witnesses, the two prophets who are spoken of in Revelation chapter 11. In the last of the last days, two special witnesses, prophets of the Most High God, who have been raised up to the Jewish nation, will prophesy 42 months, which is three and a half years, or 1,260 days, and the whole world will bear down against them. These two will have great power given them from God. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It does. And they will clearly not be popular. They will not have the support of the world whatsoever. This will be at the time of Armageddon, when the entire world will have turned against Israel. And as the book of Revelation says, If any man will hurt them, Fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Then, when they have finished their testimonies in this covenantal time of forty-two months, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. What a dismal moment that would be. This is Satan who wars against the saints, who hates and spurns the scriptures, who fights against the Lamb of God from before the foundation of the world. And these two witnesses, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city Jerusalem. And all people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves." And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake. These are all scenes and prophecies of these last days, and they will come to pass. Things will certainly get much worse than they are now for this prophecy to come about. This is a very specific prophecy to watch for. Thanks so much, our dear listeners, for joining us again this week. And thanks for your patience and waiting for this podcast. And thanks to Paul Cardall for his beautiful music that opens and closes this podcast. Next week we'll have a special Christmas lesson entitled, Good Tidings of Great Joy. Don't forget to make your final orders of the beautiful Bicentennial First Vision calendar at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash calendar. That's latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash calendar. We'll see you next week and have the most joyous and merry of Christmas seasons. (laughs) 